What does alcohol have anything to do with the U.S. Census? It, it's happened every 10 years, even during the Civil War, it happened, right? Even, even during the Civil War. Yep. Now, which takes us to this shocking story. In the 1920s, we had the 1920 census. What happens next? Nothing. The, <laughs> that's, the, that's the amazing part. The, the rural forces, who were almost identical with the dry forces, the, you know, the, the prohibition forces, they knew that if they had done a reapportionment based on the, the 1920 census, um, the, the entire course of congressional action over the next 10 years uh, would have changed. Uh, there would have been no support. There would likely have been no support for any enforcement of prohibition. The amendment was in the Constitution, but no, no, no enforcement at all. Our government. government, exactly. But in this case, it limited us. Only two, only two things in the Constitution limited the behavior of citizens. You couldn't uh -huh. own slaves and you couldn't drink beer. <laughs> not exactly kind of not there's no equivalent to yeah they're not equivalent that's how improbable and how it really it doesn't fit with the constitutional idea did you know that in the 1910s and the 1920s a century ago the determined forces of a minority of americans won huge political and cultural battles against a majority of americans in 1920, the Republican Party won the White House and Congress and it held on to power for almost a decade. But this episode is not about that. Nope. Rather, it's about the determined forces of the Dries. And it's a kind of a hidden story. I say hidden because most scholars of American history seem to have forgotten about it. About what happened to the 1920 census. Hey there, news peelers. Today is August 5, 2022, and this is Adele, the host of the History Behind News podcast. That's right, we're rebranding our program from the peel.news to History Behind News to better reflect and more accurately communicate what we do, which is peeling the history behind news. And not to worry, you can reach out to me at my new email, Adele at historybehindnews.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at Hist Behind News. With that announcement out of the way, you know what to do. Get into your familiar routine before every episode. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. My intention in interviewing this episode's guest, Mr. Daniel Okrent, about whom I'll tell you in a moment, was to speak with him about this forgotten and fascinating story of what happened to the 1920 census. It's relevant to our news because controversies over the 2020 U.S. census continue to be on the news. For example, the New York Times reported that new documents acquired by Congress support what was alleged in 2020 that President Trump wanted to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census in an effort to boost Republican election outcomes. If you recall, that issue went all the way up to the Supreme Court 
which held against Mr. Trump, and the citizenship question was abandoned. And earlier this year, the Wall Street Journal reported that the 2020 census undercounted blacks and Hispanics. There are many other recent reports about the 2020 census that uh, I won't bother you with here. Uh, to my credit, though, in this episode, we did in fact talk about the forgotten history of the 1920 census. It's an exciting conversation about the roaring 1920s and the 1910s, the decade before it, which, as you'll hear in a moment, was a big decade in America's history. But then, in the last segment of our conversation, Mr. Elkin did something that only excellent historians like him can do well. He revealed a much bigger story still by drawing parallels between the past and our present, between the prohibition forces a century ago and pro-life forces now. It's a tale of how a determined minority can win against a complacent majority. I wish we had spent more time talking about it, and I wonder if there are any lessons for our time for the abortion fight that is tearing our country apart now. Mr. Okren is the author of The Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition, which won the Albert J. Beveridge Prize, awarded by the American Historical Association to the year's best book of American history, and was used as a major source for the PBS miniseries Prohibition, which was directed by Kim Burns and Lynn Novick. Mr. Okren served as the first public editor of the New York Times newspaper, and he has also been the editor of prestigious publishing companies, as well as the Esquire magazine, Life magazine, and Time, among others. He also served on the board of the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery for 12 years, including a four-year term as chairman, and remains a board member of the Skyscraper Museum and Authors Guild. In addition to The Last Call, which we'll discuss in this episode, Mr. Okren has authored other books. His latest is titled The Guarded Gate. It's the history of how bigotry, xenophobia, and then the law kept two generations of Jews, Italians, and other Europeans out of America. To learn more about Mr. Okren, visit his homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Mr. Okren and I peel the history behind this news. Ms. Okren, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. I'm interested in speaking with you about the 1920 census uh, mm -hmm. and what the Congress in the 1920s did with it or, or didn't do with it, right? Um, but I don't think we can do that without better understanding, comprehending a little bit at least, the political and cultural developments, some cataclysmic, in fact, mm -hmm. that were drastically changing our nation in the 1910s and the 1920s. Uh, and lucky for us, uh, you, you superbly describe and narrate these decades in your book titled Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. So let's get into it. What was happening to America in these two decades? Well, the, uh, the prohibition movement goes back to the 1840s uh, and then culminates in the passage of the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act, which uh, follows that. Um, in, in 1919. Prohibition goes into effect in 1920, and it really remakes American society in many, many ways. Um, you know, there was never a majority of Americans who 
were supporting prohibition. It was because of severe malapportionment uh, that state legislatures were able to adopt it. Um, so this was a minority act, sort of a minority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the, what, what it was. Well, for two things. One, in, in New York, for instance, um, where the state legislature was by county. So there were two and a half million people living in Kings County, which is Brooklyn, and there were maybe 50,000 living in a county in the Adirondacks, but they had equal representation in the legislature. That's warped. Yeah, that was changed. That was a a Warren Court decision in the early 1960s, late 1950s, uh, finally ended that. But that was the case in many states. So you had the control was in the rural parts of the states. So yeah, because built- 50,000 versus two and a half million, I think that's the number you were saying, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's crazy, right. But but their votes were equal in the legislature. So the rural interests in many state legislatures, and of course, for it to become a constitutional amendment, it had to pass 36 state legislatures. Uh, the rural element uh, had control. Um, and they were able to put this in, even though there was not broad, broad popular support for it. Another thing that I think is worth mentioning uh, two things. It came on the heel of, uh, really at the same time as the women's suffrage uh, amendment. Uh, that was just immediately after the prohibition amendment. And the two advanced together because the prohibition movement was led by the women of the Women Christians Temperance Union. Uh, in fact, Susan B. Anthony uh, became a, uh, an e- a, a supporter of votes for women because she wasn't allowed to speak at prohibition at temperance conventions. She said that we'll never have influence in politics until we get the vote. So these two things march along throughout the Wait, last- Wait, say that again, Mr. Okren. She wasn't allowed to speak where? At, at the, a meeting of the Sons of Temperance in Albany, New York in, in 1849, where she was told, she rose to speak, and she was told by the chairman of the meeting that the sisters were here to listen. And it infuriated her. So she, moved, <laughs> she was a very strong believer in, in temperance and eventually you know, would have supported prohibition had she lived. I think she would have. Um, she said, no, no, the important thing is getting the vote for women. So those two things happened at the same time. And then the other thing, another constitutional aspect of it was the 16th Amendment, uh, which authorizes an income tax. Doesn't happen until 1913. Until 1913 in the income tax, the single largest source of domestic revenue for the federal government was the tax on alcohol. So you couldn't get rid of alcohol. You couldn't get rid of alcohol until you had a substitute tax. So these two movements, both the women's movement and the prohibition movement, supported the income tax. It was passed by Congress and then approved by the Supreme Court, and, and then was enacted into. I'm sorry. Uh, passed by Congress and then enacted into into the Constitution in 1913. And at that point. The prohibition forces says we can now get rid of liquor, and it took him six years to do it. Mr. Okrand, let me just go through this. You just identified three constitutional amendments in the 1910s decade, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not usual. I think was, it, I can the, compare it to post Civil War, huh? There was there was one other. There was the 17th Amendment, which provided for the direct election of senators. Uh, senators before that were selected by state legislatures, but it was all That's part of right, the yeah. it was all part of the progressive movement of the period, which was going to you know improve American society. And in fact, even prohibition was considered by many to be a progressive measure. So four constitutional amendments within ten years. Yeah, 
And in the middle of all of this, we have a major, major international crisis. How did that impact America? Well, it really helped the prohibition forces because they were able to they were able to identify the brewing companies who were the most powerful people in the alcohol business with the enemy, with the Germans. You know, that that their name oh, like Anheuser Busch and stuff. Anheuser Busch and Pabst and Schlitz and Strohs. Oh and wow. Miller, you know, Miller used to be Mueller. I mean, and they were all German. So the, the prohibition forces said, you know, they're 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 trying to kill our boys, our boys overseas. They're uh, using up grain that could be used to feed the starving Belgians. Uh, they are clearly not loyal Americans. And so the brewers became a target uh, of much of the jingoistic movement that came along with World War I, and it weakened their opposition to prohibition. Wow. So we have the prohibition at the end of the 1910s, suffrage, the income tax, the 17th Amendment that 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 accommodates, that provides for direct election of senators, and that's a good thing versus the state legislatures. Uh, and World War One, that's that's a lot. It was how a about, big decade. Yeah, it was a big decade. Um, how about immigration? Well, immigration uh, you know, goes back to the you know before the before the country. There's always been immigration, and there's always been movements up and down where immigration is encouraged and then it's discouraged. It's like a sine wave. Uh, but the huge immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe begins roughly around 1890 and then accelerates around, uh, reaches a peak sort of 1907, 1913. Then World War I slows it down substantially for obvious reasons. But there's this enormous influx largely into the cities of the East Coast of uh, Europeans who are Catholic and, and Jewish. <clears throat> Much different than the composition of America up to that. Very, point. very different, and so that that brought about a very strong anti-immigrant feeling uh, in certain in the middle of the country and rural areas, which remained, you know, the the the, the parts of the country that were most likely to be people of uh, English, Scotch, Irish, yeah, uh, uh, parentage. Uh, so the opposition to to Immigration really it reads, leads directly into our topic today. There's this feeling in these quarters, largely Methodist and Baptist, uh, that these foreigners, these Catholics, overwhelmingly and Jews, uh, are taking over our politics. And in fact, in the big cities, the political machines in the big cities were run Irish as well, Irish, Italian, Jewish. And many of them were run out of taverns, you know, like the, the first Kennedy, President Kennedy's grandfather. Drinking on politics always go hand in hand, right? You know, the, the uh, President Kennedy's grandfather, Patrick Kennedy, he was a tavern owner and a political power uh, in Boston in the late 19th century. Um, so they were the enemies as perceived by the Methodists and Baptists, so-called, they hilariously, they used the term Native Americans to describe themselves. <laughs> <laughs> But they were not Native Americans. They were white. Not, not what we consider Native Americans. Exactly. This is a good segue for our next segment, Mr. Okrand. Why don't we take a short break and then talk about a shocking story? It was shocking to me when I read your book. And it's the story of what happened to the 1920 census. We'll be right back. At the outset of this episode, I mentioned several huge and historic events in the years before the 1920 census. 
one of which was the Spanish flu pandemic. During the height of COVID, we heard a lot about the Spanish flu, but the real story is slightly different than what most of us heard on the news. You see, Americans didn't mask up a century ago because of rules and regulations. They wore masks out of fear, because unlike the COVID-19 pandemic, the Spanish flu killed young people, including children, and killed them quickly and in gruesome ways. In Season 1, Episode 31, we spoke to Mr. John Barry about the history of the Spanish flu. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Great Influenza, the epic story of the greatest plague in history. His book won the 2005 Keck Communication Award from the United States National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine for the year's outstanding book on science or medicine. The link to my conversation with Mr. Barry about the Spanish flu is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Check it out. It's a fascinating conversation, including some background about how President George W. Bush prepared for the next pandemic. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Mr. Okrant about the 1920 census and prohibition. Uh, Mr. Okrant, before we get into the story of the 1920 census, let's just quickly get some basics out of the way here. Does our constitution mandate the decennial census? Yes. <clears throat> it's in, I believe it's in Article 1, uh-huh. Section 2, I believe. Maybe it's Article 2. Very beginning of the constitution that it does mandate a decennial census. Uh, and then enacted into law after that was the determination that, determination that representation in the House of Representatives would be based on it. And there were various changes in that law over the years. But fundamentally, the census takes place. And then within the next two years, there's reapportionment. And so that California would go from back then 10 representatives to 14 representatives. Census has taken place every 10 years. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. Did it take place in 1920? No. I mean, the census. Yes. 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 The census uh, takes place as as it always had been. So we were in the middle of uh, World War One and the Spanish flu pandemic, but the census did take place. Now, let's go to this interesting term that you brought up, reapportion. Is reapportionment in the Constitution? Um, you know, I'm trying to remember exactly where it appears. Yes, it is in, it is in the Constitution. The, the way that it's affected, it put into effect is in, is in law, but which you know, stipulates that within two years and various times, within two years, the census will report, then the Congress will divide up the seats again and based on the population. So that's a big deal because states may gain or lose. Right. But at this moment in history, it's the moment when the population in America moves from majority rural to just hitting majority urban. A great urbanization. Urban, which means Catholic and Jewish, overwhelmingly Catholic, but Catholic and Jewish immigrants uh, and the Irish who are already established in the East. And they are perceived as the enemy who are taking over the country. Which, uh, which uh, takes us to this shocking story that I've been meaning to talk about. I want to set the stage by asking one more question mm-hmm. before we get there, uh, Mr. Okrant. This distribution of house seats that affect uh, the political stance of each state, let's say mm-hmm. Oklahoma versus New York, mm-hmm. and also distribution of federal funds and all sorts of things. This reapportionment 
is is constitutionally mandated. I think they use different terms. Yeah, yeah. It's it it's happened every year, every ten years, even during the Civil War. It happened, right? Even even during the Civil War. Yep. Now, which takes us to this shocking story. In the 1920s, we had the 1920 census. What happens next? Nothing. The <laughs> that's the, that's the amazing part. The, the rural forces who were almost identical with the dry forces, the, you know, the, the prohibition forces, they knew that if they had done a reapportionment based on the, the 1920 census, um, the, the entire course of congressional action over the next 10 years uh, would have changed. Uh, there would have been no support. There would likely have been no support for any enforcement of prohibition. The amendment was in the Constitution, but no, no, no enforcement at all. Uh, similarly, the anti-immigrant laws of 1921 and 1924 probably would not have passed had there been a fair reapportionment. Why do you say there would be no enforcement? I get the immigration because most immigrants are now living in big cities like Boston, Manhattan, um, I mean, New York City, and let's say Chicago. But why enforcement? Well, the Prohibition Amendment just says it's against the law to do certain things. Okay. There's no, you know, what are the penalties? Who's going to enforce that? That's the Volstead Act, which is passed in 1919, which is a very lengthy piece of legislation that creates the Prohibition Bureau and allocates money for support. A few years later, it's amended, amended to increase, you know, vastly increase the size of the Coast Guard. Um, it, it deploys agents across the country. Um, and then there's specific penalties written into the federal uh, federal. Uh, um, statute book uh, that, you know, if you get caught carrying this much or selling this much or whatever, you go to jail for however long. If you, if you had had a majority wet Congress, that wouldn't have happened. What do you mean, what, uh, tell me what you mean by wet Congress. This is our anti-prohibition. Yeah, yes, they, they were known at the time as the wets and the dries. The wets yeah. were anti-prohibition, the dries were pro-prohibition. Was this along party lines, by the way, or no? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, the Democrats for you know a century nearly were a composite of Northern ethnic labor union affiliated and Southern reactionary racists. So, so within the Democratic Party, the urban Eastern wing was very much against prohibition, but the Southern wing, which was unanimously Democratic, you know, the yeah. didn't exist in the South that, then. They were for prohibition overwhelmingly. So, and and similarly in Republicans, it was really more based on what part of the country you lived in, I guess, uh, state by state. And, the, and and as I mentioned before, you know what kind of state legislative apportionment there was that would give outsized authority to one group and not to another. Um, so, what could have happened if there had been a reapportionment? No guarantee that Congress could have revoked the Volstead Act, or simply thinned it out. One proposal that was on the table was keep liquor against the law, but allow uh, light wines and beer. And I think that would have happened had there been a reapportionment. Now, if that had happened, the crime waves that came with the 1920s may not have been nearly as intense. And then we can extrapolate from there on its, you know, the, the prohibition better. may have lasted for a couple of more decades because people yeah. could still yeah. drink a little. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the rural forces that were mainly 
I'm using this in quotation marks. I'm using air, air quotations here. Native Americans. So they were sort of white Protestant, if you will, Americans. Yeah. They, they were, were against. Yeah. Um, they were they were the dries. Uh, the, the Episcopalians, not. Uh-huh. And Lutherans, generally not. Methodists and Baptists, which were by far the largest denominations in the country, they were the ones who led the prohibition movement. There must have then been, based on our conversation in the previous segment, sort of a strong anti-immigration theme to this as well. You know, yeah, like that's why there were anti-immigrant laws that were passed in 1921 and 1924, which really were in place for 40 years and really changed the complexion of America. We would be a very different country if those laws had not been in place. But that was my next book. (laughs) (laughs) Which, yeah. and those anti-immigration laws, did they target the specific ethnicities and races? Southern and Eastern Europe, and which was a euphemism. For, at first, Asians were forbidden, period. Uh, and then wow. serious, serious um, uh, uh, quotas from a stretch that goes from Italy up to Russia and through all of Eastern Europe. Um, there were in a given year as many as 200,000 people who came to the U.S. from Italy. And then after the 1924 law, it was reduced by quota to 6,000 a year were allowed. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. that's minuscule. Yeah. And, and, you know, and the, the consequences, as you can imagine, if you take them through World War II, were really severe. Uh, Going back to reapportionment, I sort of set the stage, I belabored the process that has the census been done every, you know, decade and has the reapportionment followed uh, every decade after the census. Uh, and, and I even asked you, did it, did reapportionment occur mm-hmm. during the civil war, at least in the North? And you said, yes. Yeah. So we're in the 1920s. We have all these uh, confluence of all these different forces, opposing forces, and the census is done. Mm-hmm. Like, are people trying to pass bills to reportion? I mean, this is kind of like the elephant in the room. It's not a small thing, right? You know, the people who feared reapportionment uh-huh. because it would take their power away were in power. <laughs> they determined what Congress was going to do, and they chose not to reapportion. And measures were introduced every year by wets, usually uh-huh. by big, uh, big city people, and they were ignored. They were simply ignored until 1929. What happened in 1929? They did a a reapportionment effective with the 1930 election. And that, of course, was the election that totally reshaped Congress. Did something happen that forced their hand in 1929? Did they lose elections or something? Well, yeah, 1928 was a very important election. It was when Hoover defeats Al Smith. And they misread what that election was about. Um, They thought it was... Because Al Smith is Catholic? Uh, well, and, and a wet. The wet forces, the dry forces thought that he lost because he was wet. Oh. So they then made the laws much more severe. The penalties vastly increased with the Jones Act of 1929. Countervailing thing that's going on is that Herbert Hoover, who had been the Secretary of Commerce, was now president, and he was an honest man. And he said, you know, Secretary of Commerce, Commerce Department oversees this, uh, you know, was very involved in overseeing the census. So 
he believed in the census and he believed that apportionment had to happen. And because they were weakening in their power anyway, they decided, let's go ahead, we can do that. Was the fact that reapportionment not happening? So, you know, 1920 census and it's going on as year two, year two is 1923. I mean, was it in the news or was this no longer front page, just sort of in the back pages? Probably not. Um, you know, you can find a lot of editorials about it. Uh-huh. Uh, a paper like the New York World was very aggressively uh, engaged in the issue. Uh, you know, whenever anything passed Congress that the New York World didn't approve of, they said it's because it's run by a bunch of apple farmers instead of by our, you know, the Americans who live in the big cities. And there's now a majority of Americans living in the big cities. Interesting. Um, let's take a break here and then talk about prohibition, which is a, just a fascinating um, era in our history in itself. We'll be right back. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Mr. Okrand, we talked about prohibition as having been a major cultural and political force in the 1910s and 20s. So I'm wondering... <laughs> <laughs> how 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 prevalent was drinking before prohibition? Was it crazy? Was it totally uh, out of control? Yes, yeah, so starting in the eighteen forties, it really did become out of control. Particularly, a lot you know in, in, in the cities, the the taverns were hiring halls. They were the, the center of political activity. There was a place where an un, unhappy man could go to get away from his drink away his sorrows. In the countryside, on the frontier, it was similar. Uh, and and one of the, the real impulses toward it, part of the movement that begins in Ohio and ends in upstate New York, upstate western New York, um, was the phenomenon of men going to the saloons were men only. It was a you, know, you did not women and men did not drink together in public, and and the saloon was a place you could go where you would get drunk, spend the rent money probably pick up a, a venereal disease because many were attached to brothels uh, and come home and, you know, beat the wife and kids and lose your job because you were too drunk to make it to work on Monday. The social problems that arose from it were truly severe. Um, and then began in the 1850s, a meaningful prohibition movement, a temperance movement uh, that, as I said, lasts throughout the 20th, uh, the rest of the 19th century and into the 20th. So along the way, many states adopted statewide prohibition. So the, the, oh, I see. the most heavily drinking period is not right before prohibition or right before World War I. It was somewhat earlier than that because you had already lost many states uh, to the dry cause. But why was that? You were saying, you know, you can go to a bar or a tavern and drink your sorrows. I mean, you could, you can, you can do that and now, and you could do that in 2010 and 1980. What was the, what was, what were the cultural differences that made drinking such a potent uh, force in society? Uh, 
Well, I, I would say in the cities, unskilled labor, uh, living in terribly penurious circumstances, unhappy lives in crowded urban ghettos, uh, and then in the you know on, on the on the frontier, you know who knows loneliness. I don't uh, male dominance. You know, women in the middle of the 19th century, they had almost no rights. You know, they, they could not choose to divorce. That was a male prerogative. Uh, they didn't own property in some states. The, the, it was a male dominated society and, and, and those males who wanted to drink were gonna damn well drink. Um, now it, it was a real social problem and it was accelerated by, in many cases, uh, the, the breweries. I mean, there was a big brewery in Detroit that had uh, a campaign about why you should give your infants beer and the, uh, the what? Pic- there are pictures in the book from this campaign. They referred to beer as liquid bread. <laughs> they would- I'm so glad I didn't read your book. Well, it hadn't come out, but had I been in high school, had I read your book, <laughs> I would have had a different outcome. Now, um, you say beer to infants. Uh, I, I, I've come across this in my travels to Europe. Is it because quality of water? Wasn't well, good. And were these diluted beers? Is that it? I presume so. I don't know. Yeah. I know. I just have the advertisements. Yeah, yeah. And I found them in newspapers and elsewhere. You know, mm-hmm. it was a real fun. The, the idea of liquid bread was a, a, a real idea. Um, you know, it, it's it's different from the European version. Um, I believe the the you were right that that. In the, if you go back to the 1830s and 40s or even earlier, uh, water quality was a real concern. Uh, you know, at Valley Forge, uh, Washington gave every member of the Continental Army a four ounce ration of grog every day. And that stayed in force in the, Amer- in the US Army until the 1830s. Um, and if you're on the frontier, and of wow. course, you know, there are no, well, you know, there are sewers systems in many cities uh yeah water water was risky so maybe that's partly the reason why the tavern world proliferated but it was what you could get in the tavern that provided the the release and the relief that so many men sought you mentioned grog and valley forge and president and then general washington Uh, i recall from one of your talks you, you you made references to grog break. What the heck is that? What's a grog break? Very common in industrial settings. Uh, this is you know at the beginning of the industrial uh, revolution, but also on you know on on, on the docks in Portland, Maine. That you know we have coffee breaks at ten thirty, maybe. Uh, they had a grog break in the early afternoon, where it was Did- to take fifteen minutes off and belt one down, provided by the employer. How do, doesn't that undermine the quality of work? I mean, I guess they they felt that it, you know, that, that it was that they weren't drinking enough for to really undermine the quality of work, but also it was keeping them in control. You know, one of the oddities of the prohibition movement is that it spanned the political spectrum, from the KKK on the far right to the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World you know, the most radical labor organization in American history, they were also for prohibition because they they argued that alcohol was the tool that the ruling classes used to keep the working man down. Oh, wow, this is a... And I think the grog break may have fit into that. How, so 
there's this is a lot of drinking that's going on. I mean, it, in wide- 18, 1830, the average American over 15 years old drank 90 fifths of of the equivalent of of Jack Daniels. It wasn't Jack Daniels, but 90 fifths of hard alcohol a year. That's 1.8 bottles a week. And if you consider that many wow. many were not drinking at all, those who were drinking were really drinking. So. Go, fast forwarding to 1920, just before, um, is it was it January 17th in 1920 that the prohibition went into effect? I think that was uh, the date. 17th, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, Midnight on the 16th. Mm-hmm. Okay. So weeks, days, months before that, the, the, the alcohol industry must have been a humongous industry. Is that? It was the fourth largest industry and invested capital in the U.S. Wow. Fifth largest in employment. Now, they saw this coming, many of them. Uh, You know, there were also thousands of breweries before Prohibition. And by the late late 1930s, after Prohibition, there were 300. You know, it really did wipe out a big part of the alcohol industry. Uh, But, you know, if you take Anheuser-Busch as an example, what are, what are some of the requirements of a brewery? Refrigeration, key, uh, tanks for liquids. Uh, so they many of them went into um, the dairy dairy businesses. A lot of them made ice cream. Stroh's in Detroit uh, became more famous for its ice cream. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, they made something. They made near beer. The one that uh, Bush made was called uh, Bevo like Duels or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, it had to be. If it, as long as it was under one half one percent alcohol, uh, it was accepted. Why even bother half one percent? fact, it's pointed out that's in the in the Volstead Act. That's the definition of an alcoholic beverage. Uh-huh. There's more alcohol than that in sauerkraut. <laughs> uh, well, sauerkraut. They they kept eating sauerkraut though, right? Yeah, they did. Um, so we have the prohibition as of January 1920. Here's a sort of a reality check. What what percentage of America actually stopped drinking? You know, nobody knows because we know how much people were drinking before because of the alcohol tax stamp on every bottle sold. There was there was data. There was data, but yeah. the minute it's illegal, there's no more data. <laughs> so the, you know there are estimates, and you know some of the estimates are based on things like cirro- cirrhosis. You know, cirrhosis follows heavy drinking by yeah. 27 months or something like that. And cirrhosis rates do begin to drop around 1923, 1924, but they begin rising before prohibition is over because by the mid to late 20s, anybody who wanted to get a drink could get a drink. It was just not a problem. Were there any exceptions to this law? Mm-hmm. Yep. One was uh, preser- to preserve fruit. That was to, to, in behalf of the farmers who made apples, hard apple cider. Uh, there was a, a barrel of apple cider at the door, particularly in New England and you know, nearly every rural household. Preserved fruit though, that meant that you could make wine if you had the grapes yourself. So on Ninth Avenue in New York City for about 20 blocks, it was just a grape market every fall. That's all they sold was, you know, from open air carts was grapes. So people would take it home and they would make their own wine. That's Exception number one. Except, exception number two was for religious purposes. 
So, which was really a way of, you know, uh, keeping is it like the, sacrament. Is it well keeping the Catholics happy? It was because the Catholics used it for sacraments. Uh, the Beaulieu Vineyards in Napa uh, County became the pr largest provider of sacramental wine legally uh, during the 1920s, and they did it with 10 different grape varietals. So if your local priest wanted, you know, Chardonnay and the other local priest wanted Pinot Noir, I mean, they made it possible for them. That's so, like people going to church to drink. Yeah, well, it, it, it indeed that happened, more so with synagogues. There's no organized structure. And the way that this Catholic wine was distri wine distributed to Catholics was through the, the church hierarchy, it went to the, the archbishop of a particular diocese, and then it would be distributed from mm -hmm. there. Uh, there. There's no such thing in Judaism. Uh, anybody who is a rabbi is a rabbi. And there were these uh, uh, wet congregations that, you know, there's one in, in Los Angeles. Uh, I, it's in the book. I don't remember its name. I wrote the book too long ago. <laughs> it went from 50 families to 500 families within a year of prohibition going into effect because they could get wine from the rabbi. I love and, it. This is a worst kept secret. And, and, and oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, it reached the pinnacle of its ridiculousness with a story in the New York papers in about 1924 of two, uh, two rabbis named McCarthy and O'Doul who were arrested because they weren't allowed to be, they shouldn't have been selling the wine. They weren't rabbis, they were Irish guys with wine. Um, <laughs> they declared themselves rabbi. The third exception was for medicinal purposes. Um, Where a lot of people suddenly getting sick and they needed alcohol. <laughs> in 1917, the AMA voted unanimously in favor of prohibition. In 1922, they realized they were re really missing a bet. And so under the Volstead Act, uh, you could sell one pint of liquor every 10 days to an individual. Um, so there are doctors who wanted the prescription business. Give me $2, I give you a pres prescription, take this to the drugstore. And the drugstores, you know, Walgreens had six stores in 1920 and it had over 300 in 1933. And it wasn't because their drugs got better. <laughs> it was because they became a huge alcohol distributor. I haven't been to a Walgreens in a while, but next time I'll, I'll, I'll go into a Walgreens, I'll have to check out their alcohol section. And I have bottles, you know, Jim Beam, uh, bourbon whiskey for medicinal purposes only. That's what it says on the label. And the same, the same AMA that wanted to bring about prohibition until they realized how much money they could get from it. Uh, they then issued a statement that, that alcohol was a, a proper uh, um, a medicine to be used for something like 30 different ailments, ranging from, you know, uh, flu to snake bites. Oh, boy. Um, Mr. Orkren, I want to go back uh, in, in our conversation about prohibition in just the last couple of minutes we have of this segment. Um, in your book, you may, you have a couple of statements, and I'm going to paraphrase um, and I'm hoping you can comment on it. Um, it goes something like this. Um, prohibition led to eventual guarantee of women's rights to abortion, but at the same time, it dashed their hopes of an equal rights amendment. I hope I paraphrased that correctly. Um, what is, tell me about that. What, what do you mean by those two? Well, well they're almost, they're like incongruent almost, right? Well, 
so, so much of American politics and law is. Yeah. Um, the 1972 Roe v. Wade opinion uh, took the idea of the right of privacy from a Supreme Court opinion, uh, a dissenting opinion of Justice Brandeis in the 1920s in an alcohol-related case. He says that in the penumbra of the Constitution, in the penumbra of the Constitution, uh, there is a right to privacy, which is what Justice Blackmun wrote in his decision in Roe v. Wade. Yeah. So that came from laws as they were enforced in prohibition. Interesting. Um, what about dashing their hopes to an equal rights amendment? And this is important because, as you recall, last year, uh, Ms. Pelosi and some of her colleagues were trying to revive the equal rights, equal rights for gender uh, amendment. So the 18th Amendment, the Prohibition Amendment, was the first one in American history that had a time limit on it. And this came about because of some careful political negotiating. The time limit for its ratification. ratification. Once it was submitted to the states, after the Senate and the House had approved it with a two-thirds vote in each house, then it goes to the states where three-quarters of the states have, have to approve it. Um, and that can take a long time. In various times in American history, it did. But in a political trade-off with some members of Congress who weren't totally dry, they said, you know, we'll see if, if it's popular enough. So we put a seven-year time limit on it. There had never been one before. Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s, seven-year time limit. Oh, so it was the legacy of the same thing. Except in the for the prohibition movement, um, the seven-year time window uh, wasn't even necessary. I think they just zoomed through it, right? Less than two years, yeah. Oh, wow. Versus in the <laughs> Equal Rights Amendment, which is more oh, important. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. I think the, the, the time limit lapsed in the 1970s or something to that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Mr. Okrand as we get into the perspective. Fascinating. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Ms. Wilkin, it's Unimaginable to us Americans now that a law could be enacted to prevent us from drinking alcohol. Even Utah uh, uh, has relaxed some of its restrictive laws. You can get beer there uh, in, in the grocery stores now. Uh, yet prohibition did, did happen. Like We went through it as a country. And it was based on a constitutional amendment. And this part is really intriguing. And I think uh, it's been some time since I've read your book, but I think you even points out that the Constitution mostly limits our government. government. Exactly. But in this case, it limited us. Only, limited. Two, only two things in the Constitution limited the behavior of citizens. You couldn't uh -huh. own slaves and you couldn't drink beer. <laughs> not exactly kind of not there's no equivalent yeah they're not equivalent that's how improbable and how it really it doesn't fit with the constitutional idea which which really takes me to this question that i have so based on what you're saying improbable i'm wondering was it unimaginable to americans back in the 1920s like for example on january 17th 1920 the first day that prohibition was in full force where American men are just walking around saying, 
what the hell happened? I can't believe this happened. Uh, well, there is some of the shock. You know, you know, I think that this is true today as well. The group that does not get its way is more impassioned than the group that gets its way. So the wets were complacent. They're not going to take this away from us. Not, how are they going to take that away from us? Uh, but the the rabid dry movement, much like the rabid uh, right to life movement, uh, yeah. you know, they, they want something that isn't in place. So they are impassioned. Uh, and that the same thing happened then. It was also true that you were allowed, another exception to Bolsadak, you were allowed to keep as much alcohol as you owned on January 16th, you could keep in your house. Oh boy, a lot of cellars were constructed, right? Oh, and who could, who could have the room and who could afford to do that? Rich people. Do you see any social or cultural movements now, you just mentioned one, uh, that could cause another prohibition-like cultural phenomenon no, in our time? I, I, I don't think that, to me, the lesson of prohibition is that you cannot legislate against human desire. Not human activity, because there are all sorts of human activities. That, yeah. But if people really want something, they will find a way to get it, given the right means and, and such. So, so I think that's true with abortion. We will go back in many states to this place that we were before Roe v. Wade, where there will still be plenty of abortions. Just illegal. You know, they will be, you know, back room and they will, they will be illegal. Um, you know, prostitution has been with humankind since, you know, the, the beginning of history. Um, nearly every country at one time or another tried to outlaw it, but human desire gets in the way. Uh, you can't take away something that people really, really want. They don't take that lying down. I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to ask about prostitution here. Also, prohibition, even though not many people remember it today, it's easy to remind them. Was such an abject failure yeah. that it'd be very hard to make the argument that we could do something successfully like this. Back in uh, October twelfth, twenty twenty, and I think I may have told you about this. The New York Times um, published an article in which it declared that the twenty twenty census are our census. Uh, was the most contentious count in memory. Obviously, that excludes the 1920 census, just discussed for obvious reasons, and also because it's no longer in memory. Do you agree with that, that the 2020 U.S. census was the most contentious count in our memory? To my knowledge, um, uh, I, you know, I've only lived through seven <laughs> I've uh, lived through five. Um, no, I, don't, I don't think that I, I don't recall any contention on the census before. Yeah. Uh, the 2020 census, uh, we went through COVID, uh, another pandemic like the Spanish flu back in 1920, but Mr. Trump uh, was involved in litigation with the U.S. Uh, census Bureau. And there, there was just a lot going on and still going on. I asked that question, Mr. Oakland, for the following reason. You know, you you talked about urbanization of America and in the 1920s and the urban power, and we still have that divide. You know, coastal America versus middle states, if you will, um, and uh, <laughs> immigration is still here. It's like I, I, I'm I'm sure you can even read some passages about immigration then and superimpose it on issues that exactly the same yeah, century yeah. ago. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, go ahead, sir. One of the things that to avoid saying they were keeping people out of the country because of their religion, you know, they could talk about 
larger ethnic groups, you know, Poles, Russians, whatever. Um, and now uh, you can't divide it by country because the overwhelming amount of immigration is coming from a monolingual mass of Central America and South America. So how do you how, how do you make exceptions under that rule? Anyway, as I said before, immigration is always with us. One thing that we haven't touched on, just that worth mentioning, is that mm -hmm. other consequence, political consequence of malapportionment, failure to reapportion, is the electoral college, because that's how votes in the electoral college are determined. How many representatives? Oh, yeah. So this is all you know that you know even today it is very easy, as we have seen a couple of times in recent history, for the winning candidate to get fewer votes nationwide than the winning candidate because of the, well, it's mostly because of every state getting two senators. But the point being that the number of electoral votes that come in Texas and Florida, which have grown so much in recent years, that's a huge block of, you know, one virtually one party control. So um, if, you know, if trends go the way they have, where you have more people uh, moving to small towns in America, we could see um, a future in which um, liberal California has less sway and uh, let's say, you know, conservative Nebraska has more, relatively speaking. Relatively speaking. I mean, certainly that's the case with the Electoral College right now. I mean, California, I think, has 50 votes in the Electoral College. Nebraska mm -hmm. has five. California is far more than 10 times as large. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's not proportionate. Um, if you wanted our audience to remember just one point about prohibition's legacy, um, you talked about desire before. I'm wondering if you have anything else to share with us. Yeah, don't do it again. <laughs> there you go. Well, that's that's a good one. I would not want prohibition to happen again. Mr. Okren, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Uh, thank you, Mr. Okren. This was, uh, was wonderful. It was a good interview. I The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, 
share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.